Every time I hear that sound, I think I'm listening to the musical score for the Born Identity. Doesn't it sound like music? <laughs> we welcome you this morning to our second service of worship for the weekend. I know that you'll want to continue to be rejoice and to be prayerful for our Saturday night service. It was packed out last night, and God is doing some very exciting things. People showing up there that don't worship on a Sunday morning for whatever reason. So thank you for your prayers and rooting them on, but I'm really glad I got a crowd this morning. So that's awesome. Glad to see you. I want you to take a look at a picture this morning, see if you recognize this guy. It's a rather haunting image we have of the optometrist, isn't it? This is um, Bashar al-Assad. He's the president of Syria. And under his brutal suppression, 300,000 of his own people have lost their lives. And, uh, And more than that, 12 million Syrians have fled the country. That's half of the population of Syria have fled the country seeking safety somewhere else. And those who remain, many of them are crying out at the brutality of this man. Imagine you're in the backyard and you're raking leaves and you're burning leaves and as you're doing this suddenly the pile of burning leaves begins to speak. And you realize it is the voice of the Lord and he said, and the voice says to you, I've heard the cry of the people in Syria and I'm determined to do something about it. So here's what we are going to do. I want you to book a flight to Damascus. I want you to catch a cab to Assad's palace. And I want you to get an audience with the president. And I want you to tell him, the Lord has told me to tell you to let his people go. And by the way, that that rake that you have in your hands, take that along. I'm going to do some very cool tricks with that. (laughs) How eager would you be to book that flight if that was the call that was upon you? We are in the early stages of the story. We are reading the whole story, all of God's story, starting in Genesis all the way to Revelation. And our purpose in doing so is to look at the high marks, the landmarks, the great themes. The other thing we are wanting to do as we make our way through this is to, to catch the glimpses of the scarlet thread. What is the scarlet thread? Jesus. And we are discover- Are you discovering this? Are we, are we making the case here? That Jesus shows up from the beginning to the end. Every story has Jesus, the scarlet thread, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, woven into the midst of all of it. Last week you read about Joseph. Joseph was one of 12 sons of Jacob. He was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And yet, by God's providence, he ends up serving on the second most powerful throne in all of the world, the Chancellor of Egypt. That's the story that we have been reading. So here's our accountability point. How many of you read chapter 3 last week of the story? Raise your hand. Awesome. Awesome. If you haven't, it's not too late. Get going with us. Join us in this journey. Here's another question. Cheating but pomp quiz. How many of you spoke to someone about the story? Told some part of the story sometime this week? Would you raise your hand? Good for you. Good for you. I would like to make this point. We're not trying to stuff more stuff into your heads. Christians today got all the stuff they need in their heads. It's coming out of their ears. But we don't need it coming out of their ears. We need it coming out of their mouths. And so one of the reasons we're doing the story is to help you realize, ah, this is my story. I can tell my story of God's redemption of my life. 
So I urge you not only to read it, not only to study it, but to begin to look for ways to talk. Surely the story of the unfairness of, God, of Joseph's life is a, a relevant story in your life today. Surely that's an opportunity to speak. So I just want to encourage you, okay? Last week, we left the Hebrews living in a land called Goshen. You'll take a look at the map up here. You'll see the green triangle up there at the top. And you see underlined, there is Goshen. It was, a, it was a beautiful land, and, uh, and that's where they were staying when we left them last week. There's a saying, perhaps you've heard it, guests and fish both begin to smell after three days, right? And if that's the case, then the Hebrews were downright putrid because they overstayed their welcome by about 400 years, 400 years. God had told Abram when he called him, listen, I've got a land for you. I've got a place, this promised land for you to go to. And Egypt wasn't it. But the, but the Hebrews liked Egypt. They settled in. They liked the cucumbers and all of the rest. And so they kind of just settled in. One thing that Egypt was good for, it was very fertile breeding ground. The story we had was 11 sons that come to join Joseph with their families. That's what happened 430 years earlier. 430 years later, do you know how many Hebrews there were living in the land of Goshen in Egypt? Mm, A little more than 2 million. That is some pretty fertile ground, right? That's what God was doing. Remember the promise that God made to Abram? Your people will be like the stars in the sky. And so God used those 400 years to equip them, to prepare them. But that wasn't where they were supposed to stay. And as their numbers grew, we are told there came a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. As their numbers grew, it began to freak the new Pharaoh out. Because he had this huge, huge gathering of outsiders who were living inside his country. And so he became nervous. And so the Hebrews went from being the the guests of Pharaoh to being the slaves of Pharaoh. He put them to work, and when you read the story, you'll see the word cruelly, cruelly, ruthlessly, ruthlessly. He put them to work building his great cities. Still, their numbers grew. The Hebrews, there's just no stopping them. And so Pharaoh comes up with a new, insidious, ghastly plan, and you know the story, don't you? Pharaoh orders that the baby Hebrew boys will be thrown into the River Nile. Every baby Hebrew boy. And this is going to accomplish two things for the Egyptians. It's worship of the gods of the Nile, because they believed that there were gods of the Nile. And of course, it's also going to eliminate a future threat from internal insurgents. How horrible is that? How ghastly? Assad-like. But there was one couple that said, you know, we're not going to do it. We don't care what he says. So when their baby boy reached the age of three months and they couldn't hide him anymore, they put him in a basket, covered the bottom of the basket with pitch, and they put it in the least likely place to find a living Hebrew baby boy. Where? In the River Nile. They floated him in the River Nile. And of course, you know the story. Along comes the daughter of Pharaoh, of all people, providentially. And she finds his baby floating in the river, and she loves him. She adopts him to be her own. She even hires his birth mother mother to be the nursemaid of this boy. And she gives him a name. What was his name? Moses. Moses. And it means drawn out, for she had drawn him out of the river. Are you seeing any glimpses of the scarlet thread yet in the Moses story? 
When Moses was born, his people were under the oppression of the Egyptians. When Jesus was born, his people were under the oppression of the Romans. When Moses was born, the king ordered that all the baby boys would be killed. When Jesus was born, King Herod ordered that all of the baby boys in Bethlehem be killed. Are you seeing this glimpse of the scarlet thread? Moses grew up in really between two worlds. He was a prince of Egypt. You know the cartoon. He was a, a prince, an adopted prince of Egypt. But he was also being raised by his Hebrew mother who told him the story of his own people. And so one day when he was a man, 40 years old, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And so he killed the Egyptian. And he buried him in the sand. Ah, but the word got out. He was discovered. And so the prince of Egypt flees for his life. He heads off into the wilderness to hide. There he meets a a shepherd and his family. He marries into the family, has a family of his own. And he settles down to what he's sure is going to be his lot for the rest of life. He tends sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. By the way... Before Jesus began his earthly ministry, do you remember where the Holy Spirit sent him? The wilderness for 40 days. The theme just keeps playing out. Then, of course, comes the the dramatic burning bush story that we know so well and that we love so well. God gives Moses these terrifying marching orders. I want you to go back to the country that has a death warrant on you. I want you to stand before the Pharaoh that wants to take your head. And I want you to tell him... Let my people go. That was quite a call. I wonder if you see the thread even here. Moses was sent to be the savior of God's people. For unto you is born a child this day in the city of David who will be a savior and he is Christ the Lord. As you read the story, you're going to notice when, how Moses tries to weasel out of his call. He comes up with one excuse After another, after another, after another, after another. Five excuses. Here they are, and take a look at them. There they are. Here are the excuses. Would you read them with me, please? I'm a nobody. I don't really know who you are. No one will believe me. I'm not gifted enough. I don't want to go. Send someone else. I wonder, have you ever had those same excuses when... You didn't want to talk for Jesus to someone? You didn't want to speak up for the Lord? Don't we use the same excuses today? God didn't buy it. He deals with every one of his excuses, and finally Moses relents, and so he marches his way back out of the wilderness to Egypt. He stands before Pharaoh, and he makes the call. But Pharaoh's so stubborn, he's got this hard heart, so God sends a series of plagues to break that hard heart. And it is the last plague, the most awful of them all, that does the trick. And finally, Pharaoh not only lets him go, he says, get out of my country, because you are vexing me. And so that morning, the two million or so Hebrews make their way out of their country toward the Red Sea. But no sooner has, has, have they left, but Pharaoh begins to have seller's remorse, right? And he, he decides, man, if I can't have them, no one's going to have them. So he sends out 600 chariots. And we think chariots, isn't that fun? Listen, chariots at the time were killing machines. They were the the equivalent of the Abrams tank of today. And he sent them out and he was going to wipe out these Hebrews before they got to the Red Sea. 
And of course, we know the story of the dramatic rescue. They're standing there pinned with the Red Sea in front of them. Where are they going to go? Here comes the 600 chariots of Pharaoh behind them. God puts a, a cloud, a, a pillar of cloud behind them. And then Moses stands up there in good Charlton Heston fashion. And the waters separate and the people of Israel walk across the Red Sea on dry land. Then the cloud is lifted and the army, they think this is their moment. And so the chariots rush into the gap between the walls of water. And of course in that moment the water comes crashing in on them and every member of that army dies. It's again ironic. Pharaoh threw all of the Hebrew boys into the Nile River. Now it's the Egyptian boys who are swallowed up by the Red Sea waters. And finally, the people are free. Finally, they set out. After 430-year delay, they set out for the promised land. You're going to read how God provides for their needs. They get thirsty, for instance, and they don't know where the water is, and Moses takes a stick, and what does he do with the stick? He strikes the rock, and out comes a, a, a flow of water. And as you're reading how God provides the water, enough water for everyone to drink, you will be reminded of Jesus who stood at a well in Samaria talking to a woman, remember? And he said to you, he said to her, I am the living water. Whoever drinks from me will never grow thirsty again. And later on we read that they grew hungry. And so God miraculously provides for them then too. He provides a a bread-like food. It's a surprise. They come out one morning. The ground is covered with this stuff. In fact, they said, what is it? Do you know what the Hebrew phrase for what is it sounds like? Manna. Manna. What is it? God provided miraculously. And when you read that story, you're going to be reminded that Jesus was one time, he was with a, a bunch of people out in the middle of nowhere, out in the wilderness, and he was teaching them there was no place to get food, and they were hungry. And he miraculously provides for them as well. Five loaves, two fish. And later Jesus says to his disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats from me will never grow hungry. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing the theme, the scarlet thread that weaves its way through the story again and again? The Old Testament points to Jesus. But nowhere more vividly in this story than in the last of the plagues. God gave Pharaoh all the chances in the world, nine of them as a matter of fact, to change his mind, to relent and let his people go. God sent a plague where he turned the Nile into blood. He sent a plague of frogs. He sent a plague of gnats. He sent a plague of fleas, of lice. He sent a plague on their livestock and on a plague of hail and a plague of boils and a plague of darkness. And I don't know if I got them all, but he sent a bunch of plagues. And every time Pharaoh would relent, he said, okay, okay, I'll I'll let him go. And as soon as the plague was lifted, Pharaoh changed his mind. And he just hunkered down all the more. And finally, God tells Moses, all right, this is the last one. You get the people ready because after this one, you are leaving. I'm setting you free. And I want to read that story to you out of Exodus chapter 12. Here's God speaking to Moses and he says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a Passover lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-olds, males without defect. 
take care of them until the 14th day of the month. So imagine they had this little lamb with them. For 14 days they cared for them. And then when all of the community of Israel, they must meet and slaughter them at twilight. Take a bunch of hyssop, that's a branch, a leafy branch, and dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood across the tops and on the doorposts, the sides of the doorframe. No one shall go out of the door of this house until morning. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. When you enter the land that the Lord gave you, that he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children say, what does the ceremony mean? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Egyptians in Egypt. Uh, passed over the house of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I know it's a hard word to thank God for. It's a tough one, isn't it? And here we come to the most vivid glimpse that we will have of the scarlet thread in all of Moses' life. A sacrificial lamb, a lamb without defect. It's slain, its blood is taken and daubed over the doorpost and the lintels of every home. And as the Lord goes through it, when he sees the covering of blood over that house, listen again to the promise that he gives. He says, he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. He will pass over. Pass over. You do see the glimpse of the scarlet thread here, don't you? Please tell me you see the glimpse of Jesus here. But here's what's different. Jesus became the Passover lamb. 1,400 years later, on a hill in Jerusalem, Jesus' life was taken. His blood was spilled on a cross for the salvation of his people. And yet here we are, clear back in Exodus 12... And already we are hearing a glimpse of the gospel of Christ, the powerful salvation of message and message of Jesus, and it could not be more clear. Here's the message we hear whispered in, in Exodus, and that will be trumpeted 1,400 years later. The only way to salvation is Jesus. The only deliverance from the destroyer is if your household is under the blood of Christ. And here we come to the most offensive thing about the gospel of Jesus today. It's not what it teaches about homosexuality or what it teaches about abortion or any of the other hot-button topics. The most offensive thing to the world today about the gospel of Jesus is this. Salvation is found in no one else. The Egyptians that night might have argued with the destroyer when he came to their house. Perhaps they said something like this. Wait, wait, it's not fair. We are religious. We are good people. We worship the gods in our own way. 
And the destroyer says, if you are not covered by the blood of the Lamb, you belong to me. And today our still offended world cries out, it's not fair, wait! We are religious, we are good people, we worship God in our own ways. And the destroyer still declares, if you are not covered by the blood of the Lamb, you are mine. This is the most important thing that you will ever come to, the most important question that you must answer for yourself and for your family. Fathers, husbands, particularly you, in your role of spiritual leadership in your family, you must be prepared to answer this question. Are you too distracted by the goodies of life? Too confused by the lies of our culture? Too uncertain about what you yourself believe about Jesus. Too busy, too self-centered to make time to ensure that your family is covered by the saving blood of Christ. It is the most important task you will ever have. Something crossed my mind. I have read this story a thousand times. I've written a musical about Moses. But I had never thought about it this way until this week. It was risky to obey God's command that night. What if Moses was wrong? It's not like things had gotten easier since Moses came on the scene, remember? Moses shows up and suddenly they take away the straw, but they still make them make the same number of bricks, remember? Moses comes along and nine plagues strike the land. It had not been easier since Moses showed up. What if he was wrong this time? If he was, then the Hebrews had just made it easier for Pharaoh's soldiers to seek revenge. Why? Because all they got to do is find the houses that are marked with a red target. It took courage to stand for the Lord against the destroyer. The followers of Yahweh were marked. It took courage to trust that in the end, God would deliver. It took courage to be marked for him. Still does. Thursday, a man walked into a community college in Roseburg, Oregon. He was wearing a flak jacket and he was carrying weapons. And by the time he was done, nine people were dead. And many more were wounded. Most of the murders took place in one classroom. Reportedly, he ordered everyone to stand. And then he asked the question, are you a Christian? If they said no, or they did not answer, he shot him in the leg. But if they said yes, he shot him in the head. If you're, I asked nine of you to stand, would you do that? I want you to think about this for a moment with real live human beings. What must, have, what must it have meant for that per, first person who was asked that question? You know, gun to your head, and you know what is likely to happen, but you're not sure. It must have been awful and terrifying for the first one who said, yes, I'm a Christian, and boom. But then what about the second? And the third? And the fourth? Are you a Christian? And the fifth? And the sixth? And the seventh, and the eighth, and the ninth. Go ahead. The, the first one wasn't sure, but by number two, and number three, 
And number five and number seven, it's very clear what your fate will be. If you keep your mouth shut, you will live. If you claim the name of Christ, you will meet him. What brave souls, yes? What brave souls. And I thought about it, and I'll bet you thought about it too. If that had been me, would I have had the courage to make that stand for Christ? If someone asked me at gunpoint, if someone said, who here will stand for Jesus? Would I have been willing to raise my hand and take the shot? Sometime in the mists of eternity past, God the Father asked a question. Who will stand for my broken people? Who will stand for my broken world? And Jesus the Son raised his hand and said, I will. I will lay down my life. I will spill my blood for them.